Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. This legacy uh, of, of slavery and lynching and segregation, our history of racial injustice. As I got to college and I started studying history, I was really interested in sort of figuring out or learning more about Jamaican history and couldn't really figure out how to access Jamaican history. And I had a really growing investment in the lives of women workers who had left sex work to become jewelry makers. Slavery and its legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston, and today I'm talking to Wendo Ajite, who is a doctoral candidate in the Departments of History and African American Studies at Yale University. He's writing a dissertation on 20th century black activism and freedom linkages between Canada and the United States. His dissertation is tentatively called From the North Star to the Black Star, African North Americans and the Search for a Homeland in Canada, 1919 to 1985. He's currently uh, at uh, University of Toronto again, where you did your uh, undergraduate and, and got your master's, I assume. Correct. Uh, where he is a Trudeau Scholar in the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada Doctoral Fellow. Uh, he is back here in New Haven, uh, it's good to have you here, and you. Uh, uh, we're glad to have you. Could you say a little about how you became interested in this subject? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Um, I became interested in uh, black history in North America, specifically in Canada, uh, because of an excellent um, undergraduate professor that I had who opened my mind about uh, the experiences of African Canadians um, and their resistance and their self-assertion. Um, and their demand for political and economic rights um, in Canada through the various centuries that black people have been in Canada since going as far back as the 17th, 16th, 17th century. Um, and so it's, it was a history that uh, very few people actually knew and, and very few people uh, discussed. And so that exposure at the undergraduate level effectively sowed the seed, um, which I was fortunate enough to have excellent mentors and elders in the African-Canadian community in Toronto who nurtured the seed and watered it. And um, before I knew it, I ended up at Yale doing a PhD. Well, uh, I'm really interested in your subject because, of course, these days there are a lot of uh, African-Americans and, uh, and white Americans who are uh, saying to themselves, I need to leave. I need to go to Canada. I simply cannot abide this uh, the current state of politics here in uh, the United States. And of course, that kind of idea of uh, Canada as this sort of promised land is, is at the center of uh, much of your dissertation. Uh, could you kind of elaborate on, on what is the fascination that, that we have uh, with this kind of notion of Canada? Sure. It's it's a very powerful icon, um, Canada in and of itself, but also the the myth of the Underground Railroad, right. um, the myth of the North Star, the myth of Canaan, the myth of the Promised Land. Um, it has served a very important um, purpose for enslaved Africans in this country um, 
uh, during slavery um, and continued to serve a purpose um, of of resistance for persons of African descent who ended up in Canada. Um, and of course, Canadian society and Anglo and Francophone Canadians often reference the Underground Railroad and the North Star and the Promised Land um, as a way to distinguish Canadian society from the United States. Um, the United States being a land of, of bondage, um, a land um, that is beyond redemption where the racial and slavery divide is concerned and Canada being its exact opposite. And that Canada having the seeds of, of a multiracial uh, liberal democracy going back to the antebellum period. And so we see um, both enslaved fugitives, um, abolitionists, and even architects of Canadian statehood uh, after Confederation, during the antebellum period, but then certainly after Confederation through Reconstruction, et cetera, um, deploying this rhetoric of Canada as right. a North Star. Right, this kind of Britishness that somehow that, that kind of translates into anti-slavery abolitionist uh, 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 kind of sense of liberty that somehow the United States, uh, their, their cousin had taken the wrong path uh, that led towards uh, slavery and, and, and racism and all the other ills. Right. Uh, and uh, when you were... Uh, visiting us earlier today, the focus of your talk uh, uh, this afternoon was on this really wonderful moment, uh, intellectually uh, as well as others, of the uh, of the, the 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 resistance to the draft uh, during the Vietnam War and this movement of uh, Americans into Canada. Um, who are employing this rhetoric. Could mm -hmm. you say something about that? Sure. It's fascinating to see the ways in which certain ideas, certain tropes, certain myths, um, certain icons um, persist over the passage of time um, and the ways in which they actually gain traction um, from one generation to another. And the Underground Railroad, um, Canada as the North Star, the Promised Land, does not lose any traction um, over the passage of time. Um, and so we see that from um, the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction, this idea persists. And in the 1960s and 1970s, um, with the US's involvement and engagement in uh, Southeast Asia, um, this rhetoric gains greater traction as sure. um, predominantly white draft resistors who said, screw this, we are not fighting in this imperialistic, imperious, unjust um, war, and that we would rather abscond, desert, um, or quit the United States um, altogether and go to Canada because that's what those who side with freedom do, whether they're white or black. And, so and are they using the, the rhetoric of, of the Underground Railroad, uh, these uh, uh, resistors in, in making that argument? Unequivocally. Wow. Unequivocally. And so it's fascinating um, initially in my research when I discovered that almost exclusively white draft resistors who left the United States and ended up in Canada described themselves as having gone through the Underground Railroad, having mm. um, absconded from a land of, of bondage uh, to a promised land, a free land, free soil. And they'll often use that rhetoric of free soil which of course is harkens back to um, the antebellum period, the debates of, of sure. the Confederacy um, in the North. And so 
it's it's really intriguing to see that this idea of Canada um, is co-opted um, by white uh, right. radicals and, and draft resistors. Um, and then certainly African Americans who ended up in Canada would deploy the same rhetoric, but to a much different effect. Sure. Now, what are the what are the numbers we're, are, that we're talking about, and and what what are the kind of years that this uh, movement of, of Americans resisting the draft? When does it begin, and when does it end? Sure. So it, it begins um, in, in the mid nineteen sixties um, and picks up quite rapidly in um, nineteen sixty seven sixty eight. Um, and tapers off in circa 72, 73. Um, The end of the draft. Correct. Right. And and so some conservative estimates um, uh, state that about 30,000 young men, draft age men, um, ended up in Canada. Do you know uh, approximately what uh, proportion of that 30,000 were African-Americans? Again, very conservative estimates place it at 1,000. It could be a little less. Um, my guess is that it could be a little less because Canada's immigration policy at the time um, wasn't a whites-only immigration policy, meaning that persons of African descent were unwelcomed in Canadian society, although some a few did make it through the ports of entry. Um, and so roughly maybe 1,000 um, African Americans ended up in Canada. Okay. Okay. So, and where did they? Uh, where did I assume they're they're uh, coming to the to the cities, a metropole? Uh, what, where are they mostly ending up, and and how do they go about organizing themselves, and uh, and and in other words, and creating the sort of materials that you, mm-hmm. as a scholar, can can draw on? Sure. So, draft resistors in general. Um, went to metropolitan areas because it was easier to find employment and integrate uh, socially, Um, whether it was Vancouver or uh, Montreal, Toronto. um, But the majority uh, came to southwestern Ontario, mainly to the Toronto metropolitan area, um, because Ontario had a a very robust economy at the time before, I think it dipped into a recession in the early uh, 1970s. So, so Wendell... uh uh, these uh, servicemen mm-hmm. or, or uh, uh, draft evaders mm-hmm. uh, who are entering Canada, uh, where do they uh, congregate and how do they go about organizing themselves? Sure. So draft resistors generally um, went to metropolitan areas. So Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto. Um, the overwhelming majority ended up in Toronto because economic prospects were just much greater than um, Pacific Canada, the prairies and Atlantic Canada. Um, in terms of organizing and in terms of getting to Canada, while some simply drove across the border, others flew into Canadian airports, um, and an undetermined number also came across um, by way of these underground networks and underground railroad, literally. So they were smuggled into Canadian society by uh, sympathizers, by friends, by other activists um, who were involved in the anti-war struggle. And they self-report this as the Underground Railroad. That is correct. That's fascinating. So um, now how is the uh, experience, what is the experience of African Americans in particular as they enter uh, Canada? I assume they're coming with the same ideas about Canada or they mm-hmm. have more 
kind of historical uh, resonance because of, do, you know, how do they speak of this experience? So many African-Americans, um, the ones who've I've identified in the archives, um, came to Canada with similar notions of, of freedom, of um, arriving in the promised land, of the North Star. Um, and so, and many of them had intimate connections that they could refer to, that their forebears had gone through the Underground Railroad and ended up in Canada. And so there was a much more personal connection there. Um, and upon arriving in Canadian society, there was a certain euphoria which they felt um, because on the surface, Canadian society seems devoid of the same Jim Crow racial caste that is so pronounced, especially in the Deep South, but also in, in the U.S. North. Um, but over the passage of time, within certain months, um, a few months after arriving in Canada, many of them expressed much angst um, and disappointment because underneath the surface, underneath the veneer of the Canadian North Star was something that they were very familiar with, which was white uh, racism, anti-black racism, um, and resistance to their, their citizenship and their presence in Canadian society. Uh, what forms did did those uh, negative experiences take? So Canadian landlords often, often, overwhelmingly actually, drew the color line um, mm. when it came to leasing property to blacks. In fact, for the, since the interwar period when Jewish Canadians, well, when Jewish immigrants started arriving in Canada from Eastern Europe, individuals who were fleeing pogroms, once they established in different parts of Toronto, they were, based on my research, the only ethno-racial group that would lease their property to blacks. And huh. so there was, over the passage of time, some interracial coalition um, with that regard. But Anglo-Canadians and other white Canadians often drew the color line so they wouldn't lease property to blacks. Um, when it came to employment, which was significant for a draft uh, resistor community, many of them had trouble finding work because they would see a job ad, call the employer, the employer would want to see them and would offer them a job over the phone. But right. upon arriving at the job site, they're turned away or they're told that, oh, the vacancy has been filled. Now, is it, there's um, a uh, in a place like Toronto, is, there's a small Afro-Caribbean uh, population. How do they, how, first of all, how, I, I have no idea. Uh, the size of that, and but how do they interact? How are they a part of that, or do Americans feel like that they're also that they've also left behind a, a culture that comes, uh, you know, with mm -hmm. uh, part being part of a, a, a vital community? Mm -hmm. So, Afro Caribbean immigrants started arriving um, in Canadian society in the early uh, 20th century, basically to work on the railroads as uh, sleeping car porters, okay. as uh, for uh, the women in particular, as domestics in white households, whether in Quebec or in Ontario. Um, and others who arrived in Atlantic Canada worked in coal mines um, and coke ovens. Um, they were non-unionized, very laborious, intensive backbreaking work that no one else wanted to do. And so the Canadian government effectively outsourced that work and brought um, black immigrants uh, who would do that work. In Ontario and in Toronto in particular, um, after 1967, when, once Canada um, renounced its whites-only immigration policy, mm. 
the black immigration popu- population rose very quickly. So um, black uh, immigrants from the Caribbean basin, mainly Anglophone uh, Caribbean, started arriving in Canada in much greater numbers. About the same time that this... Uh, that is correct. Huh. Around uh, the 19, uh, late 1960s, so after 1967. And the cultural... The cultural markers yeah. were very stark um, because Afro-Caribbean had a different, um, came out of a different cultural milieu than Afro-Americans. Um, but the significant organizing principle that bound um, Caribbean-born blacks, U.S.-born blacks, and Canadian-born blacks, many of whom descended from black loyalists, right. you know, from Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, um, was their blackness. Uh-huh. So their racial identity um, overrode their cultural, national, national exactly, identities. Was, were these, uh, uh, was the uh, Afro-Caribbean population in particular, did they, uh, did they congregate, did they create communities and neighborhoods that are predominantly Afro-Caribbean that, uh, say, an African-American uh, uh, draft evader could, mm-hmm. could, at least feel that there is a community that 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 he could uh, be in where he would not feel like the constant uh, uh, kind of tyranny of, of just whiteness. Sure, uh, around, sure, around him. sure. Certainly, there were there was one uh, principal um, black enclave in downtown Toronto, uh, which uh, Afro Caribbean immigrants as well as Canadian uh, born blacks and U.S. Um, immigrants who had come to work on the railroads, um, had helped create in, um, in like the 1910s, the 20s, and the 30s, um, and thereafter. And so in the late 1960s, with the arrival of this new wave of immigrants from the Caribbean and also black draft resistors, um, the infrastructure, the setting was in place already um, for other refugees or immigrants uh, to find a semblance of, of blackness in a majority white society. So actually, this is a good time to to ask a little about your your sources and 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 the archival materials mm-hmm. that you're uh, drawing a lot of your information from. Just where are you uh, kind of finding these stories uh, of of this this time in the '60s and early '70s? So many of the white led aid groups or draft resistor organizations that operated in Toronto and various parts of Canada in the late 1960s and early 1970s also had dedicated organs, um, propaganda machines or outlets through which they could share their experiences and inform um, other potential draft resistors and their uh, female counterparts about um, how to integrate into Canadian society and how to leave the United States um, and join the movement in Canada. And so these periodicals are replete with um, very powerful stories and testimonies um, about the experiences of these draft resistors in Canada. And the draft resistors, the white draft resistors, were very conscious um, to include the voices of uh, black draft resistors because there's only so much traction one could gain right. as a white draft resistor talking about the Underground Railroad. Right. And I mean, it almost sounds contrived. But if an African-American says I'm a runaway slave in the 20th century and I'm fleeing from despotism and genocide 
and racial tyranny, it has a completely different undertone, different traction. And right. so these uh, underground radical periodicals um, have been very um, insightful in terms of uh, allowing me to paint a picture of what happened in the late 60s and 70s. Yeah, and that actually is it's, it's good to remember for those who are either too young or, or haven't done the research that uh, that to to leave the country because of the uh, the war in Southeast Asia was a radical act. It was a political act. There were many ways that uh, people found to avoid the draft or mm-hmm. to get uh, an easier uh, 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 term uh, during this time. Is it is that I would assume that if you're going to uh, and at what that time is almost like uh, renouncing your your citizenship. Sure. Uh, uh, that 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 you're taking a real bold and radical uh, uh, step, mm-hmm. and so it kind of, in some ways, makes sense that these uh, white resistors would feel that the voices and stories of African Americans carried the weight needed to speak out against an imperialistic mm-hmm. uh, war against people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, how? Uh, how did uh, how did that sit with uh, the 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 uh, African American uh, resistors? Who I mean, I assume shared a lot of that, but also may have been coming from uh, more of a nationalist uh, perspective as mm-hmm. well. How how did their politics kind of align with with that? Sure. So the black draft resistors who ended up in Canada, many of them because. This was the late 1960s and early 1970s. Were very much black nationalists. Right. Um, they were products of the Black Power movement and the Black Panther movement, and so many of them arrived in Canada, um, knowing full well that they wanted to shed this white U.S. identity or citizenship in in some regards, in many regards actually. Um, but a, upon discerning that Canadian society was very deceptive, very cunning, and that the color line existed uh, in many ways as it did in the United States, um, many of them had to retreat back to the United States because, at least in the United States, they had a critical mass um, of others who looked like them, and there were opportunities in numbers, um, whereas isolation, um, racial isolation, often typified the experience of some black draft resistors who ended up in Canada. Sure. Uh, do you think that the uh, radicalism of uh, uh, black uh, draft resistors affected uh, West Indians who I, uh, do they, or do, is there a, uh, an Afro-Caribbean mm-hmm. radicalism as well that uh, that is bumping up against uh, that of uh, the Americans? Very much, very much. In fact, these processes dovetail um, the Afro-Caribbean radicalism and the Afro-American radicalism of the late 60s and 1970s um, converge and are in many ways integrated on Canadian soil because at this time, the Caribbean was undergoing independence um, like many um, sub-Saharan African countries. And so many of the young men, students, young women who came to Canada to study or uh, to work also came with anti-colonial, anti-imperial ideas. Um, And these ideas, as you can imagine, were also grounded in this pan-African black power ideology. Right. 
mm-hmm. right? That and and one might point out that many of uh, the leaders of the Black Panthers are 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 fleeing the country to exactly. Africa or yeah. to Cuba or, or the to, Caribbean, you yes. know, or the Caribbean. So right. it's uh, so in some ways it's uh, it it really is a kind of Pan Africanist. Uh, uh, anti-colonial movement that yes. even even uh, Americans can feel that that with the war in Southeast Asia that this is an anti-colonial uh, movement that they're right. participating in. Right. Uh, that's uh, this is just so fascinating. Uh, this is, uh, uh, but I think what you uh, are getting to is that is that while there's this initial kind of, uh, um, as you say, this appeal of Canada, the Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada is a brand in a way. It has. Sure. It stands for something, and it stands not only in the eyes of those Americans who who, who want to say, if Trump gets elected, I'm moving to Canada, mm-hmm. but also to, to Canadians themselves. Mm-hmm. Is that this is in some ways how they differentiate themselves Absolutely. from the big country to the south? Uh, how uh, how's the experience of of African Americans and maybe Afro Caribbeans mm-hmm. in Canada, how does that bump up against this kind of maybe self-satisfied mm-hmm. notion of what it means to be Canadian? Sure. So it's it, it truly is fascinating to look at the dynamic, the black-white dynamic play out in Canada. Um, given that Canada has this reputation as a haven or promised land for black people, and so. In this period, in the 1960s and the 1970s, um, Canadian authorities, the security and intelligence apparatus um, felt very paranoid that the racial cataclysm, um, this somewhat Armageddon-like conflict that was taking place in Watts, in Newark, um, in Harlem, and different U.S. cities could also happen, uh, in Detroit could also happen in, in Canada. So it's fascinating to see Afro-Caribbean and Afro-American resistors, activists, uh, Dodgers in Canada in the late 1960s um, and 1970s because their presence alone undermined much of the lore, much of the myth um, that Canadians often use as a protective shield um, and often use as as a differentiator um, to show their exceptionalism vis-a-vis the United States. And I would be remiss if I didn't point this out that most myths have a semblance of truth to them. Um, And so in many ways, Canada Canada is exceptional vis-a-vis the United States. Um, Canada did inherit something from this notion of British freedom and British liberty. Um, when we see the this divorce, this very horrible, bloody divorce in 1783 between the United States and the British Empire. Um, but much of that was strategic. Much of that was to assert um, a British way of life and British, um, British liberty um, over a very hypocritical um, U.S. form of republicanism. Um, but we see these dynamics playing out in Canadian society. Um, and we see this this myth as benign and beneficent until black people assert themselves in Canadian society, until they organize, until they say that, hey, we're experiencing way too much racism for a country that says racism only occurs in the United States. 
Right, and in fact, that reminds me of, uh, of course, of uh, uh, Native people in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, this is a this is a, a, an era of, of great uh, a great rising of, of people. Is uh, is that a part of what's happening too? Is is our our, our Native groups similar to the American Indian movement uh, forming and pushing back? And uh, put it, Paul, calling into question uh, the the this kind of uh, a story of Canadian exceptionalism as well during this period. Absolutely, and red power is a very real phenomenon that occurred in the '60s and '70s, um, and it had uh, Canada's authorities, its security and intelligence apparatus, um, on its heels. Hmm. And we see the emergence of red power around the time we see the emergence of, of black power. But in Canada, um, it's worth noting that um, indigenous peoples had undergone and were still experiencing a form of cultural genocide. Sure. In fact, when South, Af South African bureaucrats would visit Canada um, and would visit Canadian reserves, native reserves, to learn our model of apartheid where indigenous peoples were concerned, which they in turn transplanted into their Bantu, Bantu stand. stands, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so the uh, amnesty is declared in 76? 76. 76. And, uh, and of course, there are some who have made, made their home uh, in Canada and chose to remain. Mm -hmm. uh, but I assume the vast majority... Of uh, of Americans, black and white, uh, return uh, uh, is is that kind of the end of this chapter? Is or are there are there uh, you know what becomes of these uh, in, uh, these especially these uh, black uh, uh, resistors who have now returned? So the fascinating aspect of black resistors is that like earlier generations of black freedom seekers who ended up in Canada, many of them left feeling embittered, hmm. um, very disappointed um, in Canadian society. Um, and so although they went to Canada as nation builders and homesteaders, they arrived in Canadian society feeling like sojourners because opportunities were so limited to black people, even very well-trained and very well-educated black people. Um, and as sojourners, many of them returned home to the United States, where they actually ironically found much more opportunities economically, et cetera. Um, but in the 1960s and 1970s, with this new crop of uh, black resistors and freedom seekers, in the archives, many of them initially expressed um, great uh, satisfaction with being in Canada and not in the United States. But over the passage of time, they too became disillusioned um, with the color line in Canada and with the various sure. injustices. So, Wendell, uh, could you recommend resources, other uh, some materials that someone who's interested in, in this moment mm -hmm. in history might uh, 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 avail themselves of? Sure. A couple, a couple monographs come to mind. Um, one is Hell No, We Won't Go. Okay. And that looks at uh, the movement, the anti-war movement, the draft resistors, um, and many of whom who ended up in Canada. And another text is entitled Refuge from Militarism. 
Um, and that specifically looks at um, deserters um, and resistors who left the United States and made community and organized and pursued various forms of uh, political mobilization on Canadian soil. Yeah, and uh, again, I was really impressed with the a kind of research that you'd done into the, uh, the, the publications of the resistors themselves as, as well. I think it's a, a kind of a maybe neglected portion of the, the radical press mm-hmm. that we co- tend to think of mm-hmm. coming out of the 60s and 70s. And some of that just sounds really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, thanks so much for being here. It's great having you back in New Haven for a while. And uh, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Tom. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.